Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Well, hi there, Long Hill Chapel Online. We are so glad you've joined us today. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Long Hill. And I'm excited today because I believe God has something for all of us. He has something for you. The fact that you tuned in wherever you are, whether you're here in New Jersey or somewhere else in the world, and you stumbled across this, or maybe you intended to be here, God has purpose for you. He has something for each of us. And really, my prayer and my hope and our prayer and our hope is that we will lean into that together and see what God does. We've been in a series called Rebuilding, which is a study through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And as the video bumper that you saw just before this says, really the big idea that we've been looking at is how do you keep going when it seems like the odds are stacked against you? And we can all feel that in our lives, in our world, in our circumstances. We all feel that in big ways and in small ways that sometimes we have to get up, we have to wake up, we have to get out of bed again. We don't feel like doing it and we have to keep going. And how do we do that and why do we do that? And that's really what we've been looking at through this ancient text, through this Old Testament book about a man named Nehemiah. You know, something I've discovered in life is this, is that there are some things in our lives that we can't change. You know, here in New Jersey, uh, we've been having snowstorms, and my six-year-old son loves that, uh, but his dad does not love that quite as much. I grew up with lots of snow. We have an 85-foot-long driveway, and when we had our big snowstorm, uh, our plow uh, company got a little bit overwhelmed, and we ended up being basically stuck in our house and stuck in our driveway, and we couldn't get out, and it was just more than I was going to take on with a shovel or anything like that. I couldn't change that. And so there's circumstances in our lives, and we struggle against these sometimes that we can't change, but there are also a lot of things in our lives that we can change. And here's what I've uh, discovered in my own life that's true, is sometimes we get so overwhelmed by what we can't change that we miss the things that we can't. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the circumstances around us. So sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the news cycle. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the things we look around in our lives that don't feel like we have any control or any leverage against. And in so doing, we just give up. And in the midst of that, we miss some things that we can change. We, it becomes an excuse. It's an understandable one, but it's really what it is. And so this is not about blame. This is not about us blaming our circumstances, but it's about us looking and seeing where maybe God has caused, he's given us the ability to move forward in his direction in a sea of circumstances where a lot of other things don't change. You know, one of the other things I've discovered in my life is that sometimes uh, we park the things that we can change underneath the things that we can't change. And so we say, the real reason I'm not doing this, the real reason I'm not moving forward, the real reason I'm not changing the circumstance or this habit or working on this relationship is because of all the other things. And we discover that that's true. And you know what I've learned about all of us is that we really do have the best of intentions. There are very few people who wake up in a given day and say, you know, I don't want to change anything about my life. I don't want things to get better. I don't want to get closer to God. I don't want to grow. I don't want to move forward. There are very few people 
who say that, but our intentions end up not being the thing that moves us forward because we all intend a lot of things. It's February, and a few of you uh, may have made some New Year's resolutions, and they were made with the best of intentions. But unless that intention is coupled to something else, nothing really changes. Unless that intention is coupled to a direction, unless that intention is coupled to movement, unless that intention is coupled to discipline, nothing in our lives really changes. And I've discovered this is even true in our faith, and I've even discovered it's true in our church and in our Christian lives together. You know, we wish for the best, we hope for the best, we even pray for the best, but what really matters is when we start to put small steps, one in front of the other, that begin to take us in a new direction. And so here's where this all comes together, and here's where we're going to go today. You may not be able to change the circumstances in every area of your life. There may be some things that you cannot control, but you can always move in a direction. You can always take steps in a direction. And so today, this week, this month, this year, what if, in spite of all of those other things, you focused on one thing? You focused on a single thing. You focused on one thing and saw movement. You took steps in a single direction. And some of you, you know what this is before I even talk about what it could be. It's a habit you need to break. No one needs to tell you what that habit is, but it needs to end. It's a goal you need to accomplish. It's a project that you've started that you need to finish. Maybe it's a priority in your life that needs to change. For some of you, it's a relationship that needs to be restored. It's a relationship that needs to be fixed. You know, you've been going day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, and you know it's there and you kind of keep tiptoeing by it because you know it's gonna be tough. You know it's gonna involve difficult conversations. You know it might even involve you having to sacrifice. And you know it's there, but you know it needs to change. For some of you, this is a relationship that needs to end. There's something or someone who has had undue influence in your life in a negative way, and a line needs to be drawn in the sand. A boundary needs to be there. But there's always something that stops you from doing it because we all know that relationships are complex. You know, for some of us, this is a way that we interact with other people. It's this thing that we do or this way we react or this way that we respond. And we're always able to say, you know, but what about them? But what about this? But what about those circumstances? But you know that it needs the change. And here's the big one. And maybe this is the one that encapsulates all of those things together. It's something that God has called you into that you're avoiding. It's something that God has called you into. And maybe there was a moment where it was emotional and dramatic and the music played softly at the end of the church service 
and you came forward, or it was this moment where you really encountered God, you knew it was God, but now you're out in the light of day, and the emotions of that moment don't carry you forward anymore, and it's easy to forget it. It's easy to put it off. It's easy to push it to the side, but it's something that God has called you to. He's called you into, and you've just been avoiding it. And I believe for each of us, this year, this month, this season of life, even in the midst of all of the other things, when it feels like, as we said, the odds may be stacked against us in some ways, if we would commit ourselves to one thing, over time, we would see God do amazing, incredible things in our lives. This morning, we're going to look at the uh, chapter 6 of the book of Nehemiah. We continue our study through this book. And if we, you remember, if you've been with us in weeks past, uh, you know that Nehemiah was this guy who was a Jewish guy who lived around 444 B.C. and he worked uh, for the king of the empire at that time, which was the empire of Persia. And that king's name was Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in the citadel uh, city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire at that time. And Nehemiah discovered that the city that was his homeland, Jerusalem, because he was a Jewish man, uh, that the walls had been broken down. Some years before the previous empire, the Babylonians, they had invaded, they had burned down the wall, and they'd basically taken everyone who lived there into captivity. And so Nehemiah is kind of living in the legacy. He's living in, in, in the tale of that whole set of circumstances, and he discovers that his city still lays in ruins, as many cities who were conquered by empire did. And it broke his heart. God used that to get his attention and break his heart. And Nehemiah did this thing that was just not something anybody did. In spite of his position of proximity to the king, to the emperor, he went and he asked for permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall, to basically rebuild a threat right in the back of the empire. To, because the walls were broken down for a reason so that that city could never be a military or political threat again. And this was a crazy request. This was an audacious request. This was a request that could have, at the best, caused Nehemiah to lose his position. It could have caused him to be thrown in jail. It could have even been, it caused him to be killed because emperors, kings, did not go back on their decrees, and that's what Nehemiah was asking Artaxerxes to do. But the favor of God was with him. And so Artaxerxes goes even farther. He sends Nehemiah back. He gives him supplies to start this project that is not in his own best interest, and he makes him the governor over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, it's in rough shape. The wall is broken down, and the area is just kind of run by some local warlords. In the vacuum of power, all sorts of people have moved in. And the entire national self-esteem of the people, the Jewish people, is tied to this broken down city with no walls. As we've said in weeks past, the physical state of the city was tied to the spiritual and the emotional and the mental state of the people. It was broken down. There was no national pride and there was no sense that their God was with them. And some of you today, you have no sense that God is with you because the walls of the city of your life are broken down. And anything, any circumstance, 
Anything has access to your heart and can come through and raid. As the world around you goes, so you go. And I believe that one of the things that God wants to do in your life, if that represents you, is to rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah, he concludes that there's a lot of things that need to happen. There's a lot of things that need to change. There's a lot of things that need to be addressed. There's a lot of urgent matters that need to be attended to in the city of Jerusalem. But there is one thing that is above all of them else, and that is that the wall must be rebuilt. And in the past few weeks, we've seen that as that project begins, Nehemiah runs into opposition, uh, first from the outside, from these local warlords and these powers, that this is an incredible threat to their way of life of being large and in charge, and then from the inside, from, from disagreement and strife that happens inside. And so Nehemiah chapter 6 is kind of a recap. We see some of the same folks emerge once again, some of these local warlords, and it's really a conversation, an encounter between between one of them whose name is Sanballat and Nehemiah himself. And so we begin in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. And it reads like this. And word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and this is Nehemiah speaking, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, so here's what you need to know. They've threatened his life. They've threatened to kill him. They've threatened his people. They've threatened the city. They've threatened to invade. And now they invite him to a meeting. How many of you have wasted large portions of your life in meetings? How many of you, you've ended up in a meeting that could have been an email? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But so what Sanballat does is he realizes that opposition has not worked. This frontal assault on the project has not worked. And so we've seen that in the previous chapters. And so now we see a different approach. Instead of opposition, we see distraction. And there's something key that you need to understand, is that when God calls you to anything good in your life, you will face opposition. You will face opposition because the status quo does not like to be disturbed. But if opposition isn't effective, you will face something else. You'll face distraction. So if opposition doesn't have its intended effect, you'll face distraction. And that's what this is. You know, stop the project. Come, let's have a meeting somewhere else. Come down off the wall. And so Nehemiah sees through it, and he says, But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. And so now the strategy changes just a little bit. Verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Keywords, unsealed letter, in which it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting the revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports... 
You are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. And so what we see here is we see an unsealed letter. Why was the letter unsealed? So other people would read it. So they would catch wind of these things that Sanballat is talking about. Have you ever had or been part of, or maybe if you're really honest with yourself, you have instigated one of those conversations that goes something like this. Well, people are saying, I've heard people talking about so-and-so told me. We have a word for that, and it's called gossip. And that's really what this is, is this is distraction, because gossip always invites distraction. And the whole idea is that this will spread, and this will distract Nehemiah, and it will take him off the project. Verse 8, Nehemiah responds, as we should, whenever we are invited into this or whenever we encounter it, as people, in relationships, and especially in the church, in the people of God. He says this, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. And so what Sanballat does here is he strives to stir up fear and doubt and distraction through conspiracy theories, through these political machinations, through gossip. And the ultimate goal here is that Nehemiah would stop doing the good work of God. And so what Nehemiah does is he stops it cold. He says, this is just not true. It's not true. He doesn't engage it. He doesn't attempt to counter it. The whole idea of what Sanballat is saying here would have been incredibly threatening because remember, they're building a city that's right in the midst of empire. They're doing a project that would have been very threatening to the empire. And if this had gotten out and been true, the empire could have come in and could have squashed the project. But Nehemiah stops it cold. He doesn't address it. He doesn't engage it. He doesn't try to compensate for it. He doesn't try to message around it. He just simply says, this is not happening. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up. Here's what I want you to understand this morning, folks. You know, God is always at work behind the scenes. In every circumstance, in every place, in our lives. There's a song we sing here at Long Hill Chapel that says, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, you're working. That's who God is. But God does not work in the back channel. God does not work in the back channel. God doesn't work, and people are saying, and I've heard it said, and someone said to me, God does not work through gossip. The ways of God are never accomplished that way. And people, if you want to stay in the direction and in the path that God is leading you, whatever it is, whether it's in your relationships, your office, your workplace, your family, your friends, and even here at church, stay away from that. Do not be party to it. Do not allow yourself to get distracted because that is what it always does. And I can promise you, God does not work in that way. We're in a world right now 
where there's all sorts of information. There's conspiracy theories. There's, well, what happened there and what's going on behind the scenes there. Be so careful, folks, that you do not get distracted by that and pulled down off the wall of what God has called you to do with your life because God does not work in the back channel. And here's how Nehemiah responds. He prays to God, now strengthen my hand. Now strengthen my hands. And the verse goes on in verse 10. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, the son of Mehedabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. So Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, here's who he is. He's a prophet. He's someone who has set himself up as the voice, as the mouthpiece of God. And he's shut and he's got all the doors locked. This is like one of those things, you know, where somebody is really conveying fear. They're really afraid. And he says, you know what? Bad things are going to happen. People are coming. It's going to be really, really bad. And in that moment, Nehemiah discovers something. He discovers that this is not a true prophet of God. How does he know that? Because this prophet tries to appeal to fear. This prophet tries to appeal fear. And you know what? When we are running in fear, just like God doesn't work in the back channel, God does not work in fear. We're told in the New Testament that perfect love, that who Jesus is, that that casts fear away. You know, if God is our God and we fear God, we have no room to fear other things. And so voices that speak from a place of fear do not speak on behalf of God. Nehemiah responds similarly to how we did before. Verse 11, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And so Nehemiah realizes here, he knows who has numbered his days. He knows who has given him life and breath. And so because he knows that those have been given to him by God and this project has been given to him by God, he is not afraid because he answers to God, not to fear, not to gossip, and not to distraction, but he answers to God. The passage goes on, I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been entire, and hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So this prophet, Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, he has something to gain by stirring up fear. Here's something I've learned in life, folks. There are a lot of people who have something to gain by making you afraid. There are a lot of people who have something to gain by appealing to your fear reflex because it gets you to buy something. It gets you to do something. It gets you to click something. It keeps you tuned in. And so we have to be so aware that when someone is sowing fear, they are selling something. And it goes deeper than this. There are people who will speak on behalf of God who have nothing to do with God. There are people who will speak on behalf of God who have nothing to do with God. How do you know? It's not even necessarily what they say. It's how and why they say it. 
You know, if there are people who speak on behalf of God who appeal to your fear response, the message that they are speaking has nothing to do with who God has said that he is. Because God, when God's presence is filling us, when the presence of the Holy Spirit is filling us, it casts fear out. It and fear cannot coincide. The only fear we can have is to be humbled under the hand of God, just like Nehemiah is. There are people who will speak messages that sound like they're on behalf of God, and all they do is stir up confusion in your heart. They do not bring you to a place of peace. They bring you somewhere else. And we know in the scripture that God is not a God of confusion. And so this is not how God operates. So the message matters. But the way and the purpose for which it is delivered matters too. And Nehemiah responds, and he doesn't even engage it. He doesn't argue in either case, in the kind of gossipy, we've heard some stuff about you case, and then the I'm speaking on behalf of God and there's some things you should know and you should be really afraid that some bad people are coming to kill you case, he doesn't do it in either place. Instead, he stops it, he rebukes it, and he refuses to allow himself to be distracted. Verse 14, it's another one of these prayers. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nodaiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So there's all these prophets who are trying to do this. And, and, and Nehemiah does what we should do anytime this happens. He takes it to God. He prays first. He takes it to God. He doesn't engage it. He takes it back to God. And you and I can do the same thing as well. There's a phrase I want you to remember and wherever you find yourself, maybe uh, you'll even say this along with me out loud because it's a great thing when you run into these things in life to say out loud, to speak over the things that would oppose you, distract you, even uh, the, the gossip, the opposition, the things that even sound good but aren't God. And it's this, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Say that with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. God has called you to something in your life. It's a great work, and you can refuse to allow yourself to be distracted. God has called you to be a husband, or a wife, or a father, and a mother, and those things are great works, and you should refuse to allow yourself to be distracted. God has placed something within you. He's placed a passion, he's placed a gift, and he's placed a purpose in you, and he's called you to a great work, and you can refuse to allow yourself to be distracted. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. There are a lot of things that are important. There's one thing that's critical, and I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. There are a lot of things I could do. There are a lot of things I could get myself involved in. There's a lot of circumstances I could try to go manage, but I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. So why do we so often miss these great works that God has called us to? You know, I think it's this. So many of the things that we set out to accomplish are made up of small pieces. They're made up of unimpressive steps. They're made up of discipline and consistency. Think about what it takes to build the wall around a city. 
At some point, it's just really a big pile of stones. It's a bunch of stones, and at some point, someone has to lay the first one, and that seems like it's great. But as time goes on, it doesn't seem so great anymore because the project has started. The energy that was there in the beginning is not there in the middle, and you haven't seen the result yet. This is like, you know, when you have that New Year's resolution, you're like, I'm going to drop 20 pounds, and you sign up for a gym membership, or you go out running, and the first day is great. You know, you go and you buy the shoes, and you get the outfit, and you go do it, and it's great. You know, you take some Instagram selfies of it, and you put them on the internet and say, you know, new year, new me, and, and you do all of those things. But now it's February. And you haven't seen the weight come off yet, but you're feeling all the pain of the discipline that you've engaged yourself in. That's what great works always look like. And so when Nehemiah is talking about a great work, what he's literally talking about is laying one stone on top of another. You know, over in China, uh, there's a project, and we've all seen this, or we've seen pictures of it. It's the Great Wall of China. It's almost 4,000 miles long. They started the project in the 4th century BC, and they kept on going. It was almost a 2,000-year project. It ended, I believe, in the 16th century. It's a long time. If you put all of the sections of this wall end-to-end, it's almost 13,000 miles long. But it started with one person laying down a stone, and it followed with thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not more, of those same kind of unimpressive steps. And now you can see it from space. And so it started a long time ago. It took a long time. It was made up of a lot of things, but now it endures. It's something that has outlived itself, outlasted itself, and you can see it from a great distance away. Nobody knows the names and the faces and the stories of the people who did it, but their work outlives them. And any great work is like that. What is your great work this year? What is your great work? What is the one thing that you must do that God has called you to? Where maybe the steps are unimpressive. Maybe the energy isn't there anymore. But it's the thing that if you'll do that thing, it will define you over time. It will define those you influence more than anything else. You know, there's some things in our lives that if we don't complete them, they have the potential to undo us. If there's some changes we don't make, if there's some habits we don't break, if there's some financial disciplines we don't engage in, they have the potential to undo us. But there's also great opportunities. And I believe the best opportunities so often are not the ones that look impressive at the outset, but they're the ones just like the wall that over time, when you consistently stay at them, they're substantial They're important. They outlive you, and you can see them from a great distance away. But in the midst of the project, it is easy to get distracted. It's easy to be called off the wall to something else that seems more immediate, that seems more urgent, that seems like a fire that you have to put out. It seems like it's important, and I believe God is calling you, and he's calling me, and he's calling us to a great work, and we cannot come down. But you want to know the truth? There's already some work that's defining you. Whether you know it or not, there's something that's already defining your life. 
and defining your legacy. Is that the work that when you look back on your life, when people look back on your life, is that the work that you want to be the legacy that you leave, that's how you are remembered, that's how you're remembered for your husband or your wife or your kids or your neighbors or the people you work with or the people you go to school with or the people you go to church with. Because there's something that's defining you, whether you know it or not, and you're laying the stones, and the stones don't seem like they're that big of a deal. You know, maybe it's, Gossip. Maybe it's stirring up trouble. Maybe it's creating distractions for others in their life and the thing that God has called them to. And it doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. But over time, that begins to define you. And that begins to be the legacy you leave. Maybe there's a habit. Maybe there's a way you respond to people that has just become the way that you're known to respond to people. Well, he or she is going to respond that way. They're going to react that way. I promise you, the ones who are closest to you see it the most. And it's defining you. But it's also defining them. Is that the legacy that you really want to be remembered for? You know, when we look at this work, that Nehemiah is called to. I think it has the mark of all great works. It's slow. There's a lot of insignificant steps. And in the midst of it, you have a lot of reasons from within and without to climb down from the wall. You know, there's urgent things around you. There's things that seem like they're urgent. You've got to go deal with them just like Nehemiah did, but they're not more important. They just seem more urgent. And one of the best things we can do is to learn to distinguish between the urgent and the important. You know, you're critical to the completion of this wall. But just like the wall in Nehemiah's story, it's not ultimately about you. It will outlive, it will outlast, and it will have a bigger impact than anything else in your life. And here's where the good news happens, is you feel like you're just laying stone after stone. feels like you're past the beginning. It doesn't feel like you're at the end. But the thing that God has called you to, he's the builder. He's the one who will bring it to completion. You know, so often we want to go live in the city of promise. We want to see the project when it's done. We want to see it when it's over. What God is saying first is build the wall. We want to see the payoff. We want to see the benefit of the work. But the first thing is that God is calling us to the work. And maybe in the midst of that, there's something that's speaking to your weariness that's speaking to your insecurity, your anxiety, maybe your desire to see results happen faster. And it's just like what Sanballat does and like all the people that he worked with does. It's, it's lies. And what I know is that whenever we wade through those things, they have the potential of weakening our resolve and weakening our hand. Anytime we have to contend with gossip or things that people have said or we're working in what could happen or conspiracy or intrigue or any of those other things, they have the potential to weaken our hands. And we have to wade through them. They weaken our resolve. They don't make us more likely. They make us less likely. And so the prayer that Nehemiah prays in that moment is so important. Maybe you're at a place today where you're believing some lies about you. You're saying, well, this project isn't really that important. This thing that I thought God has called me to, it can wait. There's some other stuff I've got to take care of. This relationship 
we'll get through it. It doesn't matter that I prioritize it now. And so there's some lies that you have been tempted to believe, and they're weakening your resolve. And Nehemiah's prayer should be your prayer. Now strengthen my Now strengthen my hands. You could go try to combat all that stuff, figure all that stuff out, deal with all that stuff. Maybe what you need to do instead is pray first and pray a prayer that goes, God, I know you've called me to this. I don't see the results yet. I don't see that yet. All I feel is the weariness and the fatigue and the anxiety and the distraction and the opposition. Now strengthen my hands. And that's a prayer that when we get about the things that God has called us to, we can pray that prayer and we can know that God hears us. Now strengthen my hands. And so how does this story end? Verse 15. So the wall was completed. The wall was completed. Folks, whatever God has called you to, there will be a day where the wall is complete. But the only way you see that day is to keep laying the stones of the wall and to refuse to be distracted. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. And so the work that at times feels so pointless, the one thing that you know that God has called you to that feels so exhausting, the distractions that seem so tempting, the opposition that looms so loud, the lies that you're tempted to believe, there's a point at which they lose their power because you're not the only one doing the work. The work is being done with the help of your so what's the one thing that God has called you to? When we commit to that, when we refuse to be distracted, that's how God is seen. And at some point, it is such a significant work that it outlives us and will be seen from a great distance away. But in the midst of that great work that God has called you to, the thing that seems small but is really big, the thing that seems insignificant but is really the most important, you can pray a prayer, now strengthen my hands and continue to build the wall knowing that God is with you in the one thing. Let's pray. God, you know all of the one things that are represented in the lives of every single person who is watching this, who is listening in on this, wherever they are. You know what you've called them to and you know what you're calling them to. I pray that as the distractions get loud, as the lies seem easier to believe, to give into, to even go after and address, you would help each of us repeat that phrase, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. 
even when the great work doesn't seem so great, when it just seems like a pile of rocks, that you've called us to it and you're the one who will see it to completion. And I pray that in the midst of a world that would sell us fear, that would sell us confusion, that would sell us distraction, and sometimes would even put the God stamp on all of those things, we would be committed to the great work you've called us to. We would keep our eyes fixed. We would keep our gaze certain. We would keep our focus sure. And we would pray that you will strengthen our hands. And I pray for each person, however this impacts us, that you'd strengthen our hands in the great work that you've called us to. Maybe it's in our lives. Maybe it's something you've given us to work on in us. And it's going to make a huge difference. It may not seem like it will immediately, but it will over time. Maybe it's our husband or our wife or our kids. Maybe it's a work that you've called us to that we don't feel qualified for, that we're a little bit afraid of, and we're tempted to give into those things. But any work that you've called us to, you will see through to completion because you are at work in us and with us and through us. I pray that we would feel hope and encouragement. We'd know your presence today in the great work you've called us to, that you'd strengthen our hands and that we would not come down. Thank you for our time together, and I pray all of these things in Jesus' name, the one who commissions and completes great works in us. Pray in his name, amen. Hey, we're so glad you were with us today. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you soon.